Normally, episodes with guests I send to an editor for professional editing. Before recording this episode, Roberta and I decided that with the COVID-19 situation that we would let the conversation go where it went, who knew where it would go. And because of where it went, I'm releasing with only minor edits because I felt that her voice would be more meaningful now than in a month or so. For example, you'll hear in the middle of the conversation, the blue heron and bald eagle appearing. That told me this was of the moment and I should get it out sooner. Since we didn't get to it too much in the conversation, I'm going to read Roberta Baskin's profile so you know that her background transcends most people's. So here it is. Roberta Baskin is a veteran investigative journalist on a radical new career path. Her storied career has earned her more than 75 journalism awards, including prestigious Peabody's, DuPont Columbia Awards, and multiple Emmys. As a result of her investigations, she's made beer healthier, exposed sweatshops in the shoe and soccer industries, uncovered pediatric dental abuses, and succeeded in banning dangerous products. Roberta served as executive director of the Center for Public Integrity, senior Washington correspondent for Now with Bill Moyers, senior investigative producer for ABC News 2020, and chief investigative correspondent for the CBS News magazine 48 Hours. Her proudest journalistic achievements have been writing wrongs, especially transforming the way companies do business. Roberta was named a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and an Ethics Fellow at the Pointer Institute. She taught a graduate school course on investigative reporting at Georgetown University. She's actively served on many boards of directors, including the Fund for Investigative Journalism, Investigative Reporters and Editors, the Journalism and Women Symposium, the Center for Public Integrity, the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Journalism Committee, the Neiman Foundation's Executive Committee, Images and Voices of Hope, the Foolproof Foundation, and the Fowler Center's Advisory Board. She's been a guest lecturer internationally from Baku to Budapest and from Bilbao to Borneo. Roberta's an avid scuba diver, and she likes to, the little pun here in her profile, she likes to bask in the sun, because her name's Baskin, anywhere near warm, warm water. She's currently at work on a memoir. She, since the journalism career, founded aimtoflourish.com, at the Fowler Center for Business as an Agent of World Benefit at Case Western Reserve University to find and showcase good companies, in quotes, across the globe. The initiative invites business school students to write about scalable innovations aligned with the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. Real Leaders Magazine honored Roberta among its 100 visionary leaders in 2018. Now look at this media experience. She worked with CBS News doing 48 Hours, CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, Eye to Eye with Connie Chung, Street Stories with Ed Bradley, CBS Morning News, Then with ABC News, she did 2020 and Good Morning America. With PBS, she did Now with Bill Moyers. She also did Frontline. With NPR, she did The Diane Rame Show and Washingtonian Magazine. That's who we're listening to. As I said, her message, I think, is unique and of the moment. Here's Roberta. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Roberta Baskin. Roberta, how are you? Well, that's an interesting question. (laughs) I'm alone together as a uh, professor that I had, Sherry Turkle wrote a book called Alone Together. I keep thinking about this new uh, word that we have in our vocabulary or words, two words, physical distancing. Mm-hmm. Social distancing. Is no, something. social distancing. Yeah. And I want to change it to physical distancing because um, we, are, we're, we need to be more socially connected than ever, but at a distance. And yeah. we need to figure out creative ways to do that, like Zooming. <laughs> For people who, so they know today is March 18th, it's a couple days into the U.S. being really hit by coronavirus, uh, but- Although we really don't January, know how hit because we don't, we haven't been doing the testing appropriately. Yeah. And, so what do we know? <laughs> and so uh, Roberta and I met 
several months ago, maybe last fall, and we had a conversation and we talked about the environment and your Earth's call and the work that you're doing now, but also investigative journalism. And now everything's changed. Uh, everything's I, changed. Yes. The world has been, the world is a different place. And in ways that we can't even comprehend, like we don't know how long and what, what it's like a different scale of, of changed. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating to me because I think about it as the trail of a handshake. That literally, you know, the interconnectedness is so, you know, it's so deep right now that this is all the trail of a handshake going around the world, human hands. The way you said it made me feel like you view things as a, there's a story. Okay, I'm going to introduce a bit of background for you. Yeah. And earlier (laughs) you said you you referred to someone before we started recording as someone as a source. And I was like, ah, it just sounds like investigative journalism. (laughs) Uh, You're right. Yeah. I mean, actually, some of my very, very dearest friends are some of my best sources over the years. And I've been given, I've been downloading a lot of information from public health specialists who warned me about the trajectory that we're on. And, um, you know, it's pretty dark. But uh, what's what's the wonderful song about letting the letting the light, the cracks, let the light in? Let the sunshine in or... No, oh, that's, that's it's, the age of um, Yeah, it's a. Um, I'll think of it. It's a. Um, it's a, a Leonard Cohen song. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we need to let the cracks in, and um, let the light in through the cracks, rather. But um, no, hand washing is something I'm very intimate with from a story that I did back in the '80s, where I went to the Centers for Disease Control. And I was doing a story on nosocomial infections, which are hospital-acquired infections Mm -hmm. that kill more than 100,000 people a year. And what the experts said at the CDC is that, you know, bugs don't jump from person to patient. They are transferred on the backs of um, mostly hands. And hand washing is crucial. And in fact, every study that has ever been done, and there are dozens of them on hand washing, showed that nurses wash their hands more often than doctors. But what they did with me is they had me do a um, handprint in a Petri dish with an unwashed hand and a washed hand. Uh And the unwashed hand looked just like the Petri dish, basically. It was pretty clean. The unwashed hand was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in terms of a handprint of big, gross, live bacteria growing. And I don't remember all of the things that they isolated that were on my hand, but it, but it wasn't pretty. And then the other thing that I did is I worked with like the world-renowned hand-washing expert at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where she was doing an infection control class to a group of nurses. And she allowed me to spray my hand with something called clue spray and stand at the door of the classroom. And as the nurses came in, I introduced myself. Hello, I'm Roberta Baskin, and you know, shook hands. They didn't know that I had sprayed my hand. And at the end of the class, we flipped off the lights, and you could see under a black light, glowing in the dark, the glow of my clue spray, my handshake, mm-hmm. was on people's noses and, and their eyes and their mouths and their ears. I think in one, in one case, a crotch. I mean, it was just like all over the classroom was my handshake. And so it was a very, um, very clear message to me about, you know, what's unseen on, on your hand and how you spread disease. So I'm somebody who's, yeah, was 
prepared in the, in the sense of I'm always washing my hands. I'm hearing, if I'm not mistaken, an undercurrent of information that's been out there that we could have acted on that we've known for a while. Uh, and that's hand washing being one lining, thing. Josh, that, I mean, actually people are going to wash their hands more. I mean, people are going to understand the importance of cleanliness on their hands and not touching their faces, which is really hard to do. I mean, we do it, you know, dozens of times. So to, to um, and that's probably going to protect us against the flu and other things in the future. I mean, that may go down as a result of this. I think there's a bigger picture, and if I'm not misunderstanding you, that hand washing is one instance of say, information coming from the scientific world that hasn't really made it into the mainstream because it could be about pollution or, I mean, from my perspective, leadership of wider behavior of handwashing being one thing, but I don't know, I'm thinking polluting behavior being another or uh, diet being another, that the information is out there. We're not really acting on it. And it's, from one perspective, it, it feels frustrating. Like, why aren't we getting it? Of course, I, it's not like I'm getting it any better than anyone else. In the case of hand washing, it's just you don't see it. It's like that's what was so interesting. And, and I totally freaked out my camera crew working with them. They became really rabid hand washers as a result because you're seeing the growth of all of this yucky bacteria in a Petri dish. I mean, and, and the washed hand grew nothing. And then to see the trail of my handshake in that classroom – that story, I originally did the story in Chicago in local news um, at WLS, and it was a story about nosocomial infections and how hospital infections are spread. And I managed to get a lot of the um, infection control reports from hospitals throughout Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the Chicago hospitals petitioned the station, WLS-TV, not to air the story because they said it was a subject for medical seminars, not for the public. And happily, the station stood their ground and allowed me to do this series of reports. But that's how sensitive, you know, it was that they didn't, at that time, these hospital officials didn't want the public to have that information. It made them feel vulnerable, I guess. I did something I tell myself never to do, but I went on the internet while you're speaking and looked up clue spray because I started thinking, I think I would like to do this for myself to see my own hands, even to, even if it's just me in my apartment. And so the clue spray is available. It's it's expensive. It's $34 for a can, but I imagine it can be used a lot. Well, I the think price has used. gone up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you probably expensive. I did it in the 80s. <laughs> so I, what, 30 years ago? I might do this and get this because I've been kind of curious. It's like it's a way of visualizing. Yeah. I mean it makes it much more tangible. I mean, you see it. I know that like I wipe my nose with my fingers. I hope I didn't just lose all my listeners. <laughs> but <laughs> I do it. And now I'm kind of curious. And but I've been actually been saying like if only if we could see the virus, it would be a very different story, but we can't. And so we have to look around and it's a very odd feeling. Like, does this person have oh, they just got within six feet of me. And like I was walking down the street and there's someone biking along and they sneezed and their hands are on the handlebar. So they just sneezed out. And I was like, normally I would kind of maybe notice it, but now I'm like, oh, that, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It could be deadly. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, this is an incredibly virulent virus and it's new and there's so much uncertainty about what it means. I mean, it does seem to affect the elderly more of which I'm in that category. I'm over 60, Mm -hmm. well over 60. 
And, but it's also affecting young people. So depending on your immune system and other factors and maybe how much virus you're exposed to, but people need to understand, yeah, we need to isolate ourselves. We need to be smart about this. And we also need to look after our communities, you know, for the more vulnerable among us and make sure that they um, feel safe and that they know that somebody is, is um, there if they need help. You really need to organize that way. Do you look at this more from a journalist standpoint, from a humanitarian, uh, environmental? I guess it's going to be a mix of all these things, but you have a unique perspective that I feel like you've gotten to the bottom of things. And you're also, what I just heard was empathy and compassion. I'm curious how that plays through. You have a unique perspective. Well, um, I'm sure that a lot of people thought I was like a mean, you know what, on camera, you know, confronting people. I mean, my main the stories that I did were mostly about corporate misconduct over the years. And in my old age, I've really changed. I've softened a bit, I guess, in terms of thinking about what can I report to people about what works, about, you know, what, what the solutions are in our communities, not just what's wrong. I used to just bound out of bed in the morning to tell you about a company doing a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That was what I did for decades. But um, I'm really interested in finding solutions to the climate crisis. That's the work that I'm doing with the Earth's Call Fund. I'm involved with, um, well, for 19 years, I was involved in something called Images and Voices of Hope, which were media makers exploring this notion of restorative narratives. How can we tell stories, not happy news, but stories that are difficult to tell, like about a school shooting or an earthquake, in a way that doesn't leave the community with despair. Well, that group has just morphed into a, a new group. We, we combined forces, and it's now called the Peace Studio. And it's a, a new organization. I'm really excited to um, support it. I was supposed to come to New York the end of this month for a board meeting for it, but we're going to be doing it all virtually now. And that's what we have to do. But we're really thinking about how can we work virtually in terms of helping people, you know, feel restorative narratives, be entertained by music, learn meditation, feel this kind of awakening that is going on in the world right now. I mean, I do feel like as horrible as this virus is, and it is, and it's going to get worse, it's still an awakening experience for who do we want to be? We have a lot of problems in the world and beyond the virus in terms of um, the disparity, the chasm between the wealthy and the, and the poor, the fact that thousands of children die of hunger, of diseases that they shouldn't get on a daily basis. And, and that you have people who have billions of dollars that they don't have enough days in their lives to spend. And so, I mean, there's a lot for us to think about, about who do we want to be as um as humans and in living with other living things on this planet. And I think about Mother Earth right now, who, uh, I mean, actually more is happening right now in terms of lowering our carbon footprint mm -hmm. than, than we could have possibly, you know, figured out people aren't flying and people are staying put, not driving around in the same way. And, and so it's really helping in terms of pollution and our carbon footprint. It's not the way to do it, but, you know, M Mother Earth has her own way of, of doing things. 
So I'm thinking about this in so many sort of philosophical ways, you know, that here we have in America, you know, an administration that has been so excited about building a wall on our southern border. And that wall is not going to prevent this little tiny invader that we can't even see that's coming at us from from all corners of the world. I think about how interconnected we are, that we're learning even, even more so how interconnected and fragile we are. And so what can we do to, um, in terms of coming together as humanity and strengthening our planet and understanding, you know, being more empathetic, um, looking after each other, taking care of each other and, uh, and of all living things. Even if we're not face-to-face able to hug, still having those connections. We can do it like this. Yeah, a virtual hug. <laughs> so listeners, That's we were, we were video and put our arms out. Yeah, <laughs> It is not the same, but um, it is. I have this friend who runs this magical museum in Baltimore called the American Visionary Art Museum. Mm-hmm. And she wrote to me last Sunday and talked about the forced stillness of this time that we're in this forced stillness. It's really a beautiful thing in terms of, you know, so what are we going to do with this? We do need to take it seriously, but it can be grace-filled. You said something that people are now doing, they're changing their behavior, which happens to be lowering the carbon emissions. And then you said, this isn't the way to do it. Okay, is there a way to do it? Is there a way to, I mean, we don't want people dying for it to happen. We don't want healthcare systems overloaded for it to happen. Is there a way for people to voluntarily choose to fly less, drive less, buy less stuff, and get that this is going, that that doesn't mean that we're making our lives worse? I'm sorry. I'm just looking at this amazing blue heron outside my window. (laughs) Is that a rare occurrence or is it, do we just now have an example of? It's just beautiful. Yes. It's an, oh my God. It's just like they're diving. I'm, I live on a lake and spring is coming. Yeah, there are daffodils from the garden and blue herons are suddenly showing up. And is that, um, is that rare enough? And I because... think I'm seeing a bald eagle. I hope not eating the heron. <laughs> no, no, but I saw like, I mean, it was just like swooping out there. I don't know if they were like, you know, what was going on because I'm trying to focus on you, but that was exciting. I don't mind if you pick a heron over me. Or <laughs> nature is awakening. Yeah. Well, partly uh, the reason I'm asking if it's, if it's rare is that, is it possible that I distinctly see, or when I was in Manhattan, I could see a lot fewer planes just in a couple of days. And I wonder if the, it doesn't take much for nature to get back. It's, it comes back really fast. I mean, anyone who's seen pictures of Chernobyl, but I think now there's images that I've seen of the canals in Venice running clean right now. And so maybe it really we just have to lay off a little bit. And I think a lot of people feel like if we don't step on the gas all the way down to the metal all the time, there's this dichotomy that they feel like the only alternative is we're going to go back to the stone age and everyone's going to die in childbirth. And they don't get that you can keep the parts that you like and get rid of parts that you don't. And you don't, there's nuance that I think it comes through experience that if you act, then you get it. Actually, can I read a little story to you that I just rediscovered is only a paragraph Yeah, you're a storyteller. (laughs) It's really beautiful. It's from uh, The New Yorker, and it's by Kurt Vonnegut. It's it's about enough. Uh So this is what Kurt Vonnegut wrote about, okay, Joe Heller. 
True story, word of honor, Joseph Heller, an important and funny writer, now dead, and I were at a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. I said, Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money than your novel, Catch-22, has earned in its entire history? And Joe said, I've got something he can never have. And I said, what on earth could that be, Joe? And Joe said, the knowledge that I've got enough. I just think that's so. This resonates very deeply with me. That's a story for our times. <laughs> it resonates very deeply with me because to me, climate, carbon dioxide, methane, plastics, mercury, overpopulation, deforestation, all of these to me are the measurable effects that I don't think of carbon dioxide as the cause of global warming it, because it has no volition of its own. And it's, it, it reacts to our behavior. Our behavior comes from our beliefs and our stories and our images. And one of the main ones that I see driving all of this is growth, that we need to grow all the time, both the economy, the population, and so forth. So if we're going to, re- the other one being externalizing costs, if you, can, if you can dispose of something without paying anything, why not? That's, you know, you should. That, I think, has been driving us for quite some time, several generations at least. Yeah, no, I feel very guilty about it. I feel like I have been selfish in terms of the, you know, I've been living in this time, you know, I'm in my 60s, I've lived through the other 60s. And we've just been like, yeah, this kind of free fall in terms of consumerism. And, you know, my job in terms of doing like consumer investigative reporting was telling people, oh, about the bad companies, you know, trying to sort that out for people. But really, we need to get more in touch with enough, you know, that we have enough. And to, I mean, one of the things that I think is most important during this very dark time of the coronavirus and and the consequences of the lack of leadership that we've had in terms of preparing for it is to appreciate, just to be, to take some time every day and just be grateful for what we do have, you know, and and you start to notice the small things that you can really be grateful for. They're everywhere when you start counting them up. The appreciation, for me, the word that I usually use is joy. What you get when you have enough is joy. When you always want growth, it's craving. I don't know if I'm being too... Broad, it's but never think, enough. Exactly. Never enough means always want more. That's, That's like that That's billionaire, you yeah. know, that billionaire on Shelter Island with who knows how many houses and, you know, and, and how can you, how can you sleep at night with a bunch of houses when you know that there are people being kicked out of their houses or who don't have a house, people who are homeless or hungry, children in America who are hungry, children who are dying of, of diseases that they shouldn't be exposed to. You know, that this is a time where we can really think deeply about, you know, in, in this quiet, you know, as, as, my, as my friend called it, this forced stillness, what can we do in terms of co-creating, putting our heads and hearts together and thinking about the world that we really want to live into beyond this virus. I want to be a little compassionate also. The bill, I don't know who the billionaire is, but the question, how can this person do that? There is an answer. And I don't think that the person is thinking, I want to take from the people who have less and, and just keep taking more and more. Well, one of the beauties, really, one of the very thought-provoking things about the coronavirus is that, you know, people who 
have, you know, are very rich, are very often insulated from suffering and what, what those who are the have-nots experience on a daily basis. And so they got to experience, you know, in just a couple of days, the market panic. You know, they don't quite have as much as they used to. It's all just like funny money anyway. So it's been, this, this virus has been quite an equalizer in, in, in its own strange way. What do you think allows that person to sleep at night doing what they're Not doing? thinking, <laughs> just being, you know, completely, not clueless, but ignoring the world around them, just sort of being in a bubble of, of champagne, I guess, or, you know? Well, I mean, most of us are living beyond, I mean, the earth in general is over one footprint. I mean, we, we are living, most of us are doing that on some scale. Are we all also doing that? Also not thinking? Yeah. I mean, I hold a lot of guilt over the way that I have been fairly clueless in terms of my own consumerism. But I worked really hard to put solar panels on the house. I live in Virginia now. I used to live in, I grew up in New York and then I lived in in Chicago and then Washington, D.C. I'm now in the country. It's a completely different lifestyle. But in Virginia, they're not solar friendly. So it was very challenging to find somebody to even install solar panels on the house because all of the installers go to D.C. and Maryland. So we put solar panels on the house. But you can only generate 50% of your needs. Because I said, why can't we have more solar panels? And they said, because in Virginia, you can only generate 50% of your needs. Because the utilities have lobbied, you know, in the state house and have managed to get some kind of weird legislation passed like that. I also bought an electric car and I'm leaving it in the, in the driveway. <laughs> I'm just not traveling now, but I'm, I'm trying to make up for my selfishness in the past. I mean, just my, yeah, not really thinking about what the, the footprint that you, that you put down when you buy plastic and, and don't recycle. And, you know, I've gotten into doing things differently and joyfully, as you would say, and I would say appreciatively. I hear a lot of people saying right now, oh, it's great. I'm discovering the simple things that, I, that were always there. And I'm a jerk sometimes because I, I think very highly of myself too much. And I think, well, I was doing this like a long time ago with the not flying and the avoiding packaged food and so forth. And so I, I can't help but wonder, let's say one day we get, we can inoculate against this. And, you know, I, I wasn't there when Jonas Salk came up with the polio vaccine, but I have a feeling people will be very, very happy. And I wonder how many people will say, great, now I can go back to what I was doing before. And how many will say, oh, what, what have I done? Like, I'm going to keep the way that I've learned now. It depends on the person, you know, that's the beauty of humanity is like, you know, we're all different and, and um, we all react differently. And I hope that there will be this coming together and sense of interconnectedness because that's how we are in the world. And if this hasn't said that loud and clear to us, you know, to have a pandemic that is going to kill um, innocent people and disproportionately the most vulnerable, then, you know, I think that we really can emerge out of this uh, stronger and with more empathy for our fellow humans 
and all living things. I mean, this is like, you know, so, so many species are disappearing because of the way that we're treating the planet. And the reality is, you know, our planet will still be here. Mother Earth will, will endure whatever we, we do and she'll come back you know, she'll regenerate. But humanity, civilization won't be here if we don't get our act together. And this is like a, a an opportunity, I was an gonna opportunity ask, to do that. I was just going to ask, do you also see this? I have to preface this as people hopefully get this, but in the moment, people are suffering and that's very important to consider. But if we don't all die from this, life will continue, society will continue. And to me, the greatest danger in the long term would be if we don't learn from this how to institute changes shame on us as a species you know let the ants prevail <laughs> hopefully the ants and the uncles will prevail though <laughs> let's play things out if you if you could have your way i don't not as a dictator but if people listen to this and listen to you and thought oh that makes a lot of sense what message would you want them to hear to make it so that you would say Oh, humanity's got a great, humanity belongs. Humanity is not a, a parasite. Humanity is not a cancer. Humanity is not a virus. What would change, but still being us? I mean, not like a, I mean, you could imagine we would just magically, do, but I mean, if we were still human, very human, and what would be, what would there be more of? What would there be less of? How would we look? Have you thought of that? I would hope that people will, will think about what a precious opportunity this is for all of us to globally cooperate and shift our values and, and um, take positive, wise actions and look out for each other. Do you have any sense of what they might, any of them might be? Well, a lot, you know, um, I've been very focused on the climate crisis before this virus kicked in. And we know what the solutions are. We, we know what to do. We just have to do them, and that takes leadership. And so one of the most important things to do is to take seriously our elections and elect leaders who will lead us into um, a more environmentally friendly and a world that works for all. You know, I love the um, – I was an early adopter even before the UN voted on them. I embraced the sustainable development goals, those 17 goals that for once – I think it was the first time ever that the world unanimously agreed on anything. And so the 17 sustainable development goals that we are trying to achieve by 2030, the bottom line of those, of those goals are leave no one behind. And that's what we need to do. We need to leave no one behind. We need to think about, you know, how to protect and care for each other and, and this beautiful planet that we live on. I'm, I'm looking for things that like, what is not specific, low, necessarily low level. Like composting. I'm composting now. I put solar panels on the house. I'm driving an electric car, but I'm not even driving. <laughs> I'm um, trying to, one of the things that my daughter, who is a um, neuroscientist, has chastised me for is the waste in terms of food waste. And being more mindful about that, I think that's really important. That's a huge contribution to to the climate crisis. And so, yeah, reusing, you know, being even thinking about art, you know, how you can create art out of um, recycling. And how about at the corporate level, at a higher level? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but... I'm a big fan of the B Corp movement. Uh-huh. 
So I look for B Corp companies to support. I wish that more of them would would make more of the fact that they are B Corps. A B Corp is a company that has um, met certain specifications. You have to get so many points in, in, in different arenas, like the environment, how you treat your employees, your transparency and accountability, how you treat the community. You can't become a B Corp, for instance, if you're treating your your environment well, but not treating your employees well. You have to get a certain number of, you know, in order to be certified. It's a huge movement. There are thousands of B Corps now, and those are companies that I look for and want to do business with. And I think people need to, yeah, pay attention to that. In fact, what's beautiful about the B Corp vision mission is they want to do away with themselves. They really think in terms of the long run, they don't want to have to have companies certified as B Corps. They want all companies just to behave that way. Have you worked with Lorna Davis, who was on this podcast? No. She was at Danone and was a major person behind Danone USA becoming a B Corp, which I think is a roughly billion dollar B Corp. So to the listeners, check out Lorna Davis's episode because she talks a lot about it. And I was... I'd heard about them and then she really brought it home because she was right in the thick of things. Yeah. I think a B Corps is also something that is, I feel like whether they did it on purpose or not, they found a leverage point of a system that it's easy to change little elements without changing the system. And I feel like this is a, whether that it, it gets to the heart of like, what's a corporation about? Is it going to be a psychopath that only just, just wants to raise a share price and, you know, nothing else matters. Yeah, right. I mean, most companies are just beholden to their shareholders. That's how they think just in terms of like short-term thinking about, you know, making a profit for the next quarter. B Corps are taking a longer view and there's some amazing companies like Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, you know, the um, Ben and Jerry's. I mean, there's, there's a lot of companies and it's worth going to the website and seeing who those companies are and and supporting them. Bart Houlihan, who was one of the co-founders of the B Corp movement, was in the room when we he helped design this this thing that I co-founded called Aim to Flourish. And Aim to Flourish was a way of teaching the sustainable development goals to business school students around the world. And for me, it was a different way of looking at business instead of looking at what's wrong, which is what I had done all my life, like really love to tell you about a company, you know, doing something awful. Um, Instead, asking this army of business school students to go out and find a cool example, an untold story about a company in some way helping to achieve one of the sustainable development goals. So the website is AIM, A-I-M, the number two, Flourish, We adopted the sustainable development goals even before the UN voted on them as our kind of organizing platform. There's now um, more than, I think, more than 3,000 stories on the website written by business school students in more than 80 countries around the world. And I'm just, and it it just flourishes. I mean, it's, you know, it's just a really beautiful system and it's run out of the um, business school at Case Western Reserve University at the Fowler Center for Business as a Nation of World Benefit. You know, you're sharing something that is, um, I was hoping to hear something like this. The news has a few pleasant stories, but it's really a lot of crisis right now. And yeah, we I, need relief from that. 
Relief and also... Well, you really, I'm I'm actually thinking about a news diet because it's like rubbernecking. I find myself just so drawn into the rabbit hole on on the website of, you know, the next story and the next story and the next story. And it's, you know, we really need to to be still and breathe and get into our gardens if we have one (laughs) or somebody else's garden, get into the dirt. I can't wait to get on the lake and go stand up paddle boarding, you know, every day. It's just a really, you know, being, being with nature is new for me because I'm a city rat, mm-hmm. you know, it's like I spent my whole life in cities. And so this is really a treat. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Actually this morning we put some potatoes. We didn't even plant them. We just put them in the compost and they'll grow out here. There's enough space that it's like, and it's when you said compost as the first thing, you smiled, I smiled. It's eerily fun, is it not? Like there's something really joyful about composting. It's magical. Yeah. It's so magical. You take your waste and it turns into beautiful, loamy earth. How great is that? I took the bus back from Boston a couple of weeks ago and there's like a trash bag there and people just throwing their trash, a lot of trash in the car. And some guy throws a banana peel in and I was like, I could compost that. And then he turned <laughs> apple peel in and I was, I was like, like, all right, right that's, that's it. it. I went up and took him out. And I was like, how many people are going to see me doing this? So I had to say to the guy, you know, once you start composting, you just can't help it. And then he came by and gave me another banana peel later. So I brought, brought, (laughs) took them home. Josh, you are in a sphere of your own, really. Whatever it sounds like. It's very inspiring. I don't think I'm going to be taking trash out, you know, garbage out of the garbage can site. But (laughs) whatever it sounds like, definitely enjoying composting our stuff. Yeah. It's really fun. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. And it's just you and and some other people out there. Everybody's different. Remember, that's, yeah. everybody's unpredictable. Well, it was more than just, a, you said get a break. And you're also saying something more than a break, which is looking forward. And it's more than hope because I think beyond hope, like expectation of change. To me, the big thing is going from a world, a culture where growth, unchecked growth, and externalizing costs are these very high values that people don't ever question and push back very hard if you say if you suggest something else. And the complement to growth is to me enjoying what you have and having enough. And something you didn't mention, yeah, enjoying. To- and it really is, a, a, you know, a moment right now in terms of hitting the pause button and remembering to be grateful. I mean, you know, that's where I go when I meditate. I go into gratitude and it's, um, I can feel my heart open up when I do that. I mean, you can just feel the vibrations change around you just to be grateful for little things that, that really matter. I'm getting teary. I just think it just, when I say the word gratitude, it just puts me in a different place. It's all, it's all energy. Words matter. Yeah. And we, I mean, that's another thing in terms of um, how we started out this podcast with, you know, that instead of social um, distancing, it should be physical distancing. And socially, we need to connect more than ever. Yeah, we need to. This is a moment to embrace, you know, virtually. (laughs) Normally, when I uh, record with a guest, I, I send it to my editor and there's a cue and it takes a while. And it may be that I just post this right away without going through the editor, just because I've heard people say things like what you're saying. And it's not an easy thing to, in the moment of tremendous hardship for a lot of people to respect that. 
not disrespect that. And also, and, and it's very easy to say platitudes as well, but it's not so simple to, I'm not sure if I can say it well, to, to find something that we can learn from and see the opportunity without sounding callous about the current moment. I mean, there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering going forward through, through this virus. There's no question about that. But we can also find moments of grace in it and find ways of looking after each other. Yeah, that's my hope. I think also preparing the way we're growing, this isn't the last of it. And, but if we can learn from this, I hope that we learn from this. I think that we'll have crises to come, but maybe the crisis will peak in terms of like, just like this virus will peak probably. It'll probably peak and then diminish. I mean, smallpox and 1918 flu and bubonic, and they all went away eventually. And likely this one will, we don't know. But the next one, something, something will come. If this doesn't teach us how interconnected we are, though, nothing else will. It's really, we've been hit over the head with a two by four this time. <laughs> and um, yeah, it just needs to sink in and we need to be contemplative about what are we going to do about it? How are we going to turn that into, I was thinking about, you know, the Italians singing while they're, yeah. you know, in, in isolation, how that really touched my, my soul and thinking about, yeah, what do the Italians do when they're handed lemons? They make lemoncello. <laughs> you know, it also hit me when last Thursday, my mom was in town and she was scheduled to visit me and she texted and said, look, I'm high risk and I'm not going to go into Manhattan. And my niece, it's now canceled, but was going to have a bat mitzvah next weekend. And yes, we are spending less face-to-face time. Well, now I've come up here, uh, I'm at my mom's house, and less physical time, but I think struggling together brings us closer. And that's, that's the opportunity. Alone together. Yeah. Well, Roberto, thank you very much. Uh, any anything to close with? I mean, you said uh, several things in a row that all could have been things to close with. No, thank you, Joshua, for the opportunity just to yeah reflect on on all of this, just to you know have a conversation about it, and um, yeah, we'll see where this goes, and um, hope for the best, and look for ways to make it as uh, the best that we can get through this. Roberto Baskin, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh.